Anybody know who that is? Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, well, not fantastic in a sense, but fantastic in the sense that you're about to, to learn something, hopefully. This is William J. Seymour. He was born in 1870 in Louisiana to parents who were freed slaves. He was one of eight kids and, and was raised in abject poverty. Um, just for the sake of time, we're going to fast forward a bit. In his 30s, he made his way to Houston uh, to a little Bible school there. There weren't many students. And in fact, the Jim Crow laws were such that he really wasn't supposed to be in the school, but they let him in the school, but not in the classroom. He had to sit in the hallway to hear it and to be taught and to learn it. And so the, the director of the school's name was Charles Parham, and, and Charles and William would go out preaching in the city. And, and they would sort of preach together, but, but Charles would only let, let William preach to, to black audiences, is what... Uh, is where William was allowed to preach. And then in the early 1900s, it was either 1906 or 1907, a church called William to come to Los Angeles to be their pastor, a small uh, holiness mission church. And at the time, the, the early 1900s, Los Angeles was, it was kind of the place to be. It was, it was a, a booming city. It was only about a quarter of a million people at that time. But 3,000 people a month were moving to Los Angeles. Um, and, and it was, uh, you know, like I said, a growing city, but it was still a city very much divided uh, racially. And the, the front page of the, of the newspaper regularly shared stories of, of race uh, issues and, and just things that are uh, only slightly better today at times. Um, Seymour went to the church, William, and he was quickly uninvited from being the pastor there. He had some, some views of sanctification where at the time there was a holiness movement where they, they thought like there was a, a second work and you would have to be completely sanctified and not sin again. And um, that, that's part of the, the holiness tradition. But he started preaching at a, a small house. And soon the house could not contain the crowd, so he moved out to the porch, had a makeshift pulpit. And at one point there were so many people who crowded onto the porch that it collapsed and gave way. Uh, nobody was hurt, but white people started showing up, black people started showing up, and so he needed uh, another space to have their services. And so there was an abandoned uh, AME church close to downtown, and it was, the place was in shambles. Like the, the windows were broken out, it was littered throughout, the doors were barely hanging on the, on the hinges, uh, and it was the perfect place because it was away from uh, the, the residences because the meetings that they had were lasting into the night. And then it was also the perfect place because the poor of the poor felt welcome there. Like they didn't have to worry about stained glass and getting cleaned up to come to church. Like it was just come as you are. Um, and there was an incredible revival that hundreds and then thousands of people began to come, some out of curiosity and some genuinely seeking God. And it was men and women seeking God, sometimes dancing, sometimes crying, sometimes shouting. Um, and there was no robed choir. There was no hymnals. There was no order of service. It was kind of in the old Quaker fashion. It was like, who has a word from the Lord? Would get up and, and speak or, or sing. And, and William rarely preached. And when he did, he often kept his head in a, a crate behind the pulpit so that he could not be seen. Crowds of 1,500 packed into the small church for three years, and during the peak of the revival, services were seven days a week from mid-morning until midnight. 
Such was, was the move of God. It was a, a, a multi-ethnic um, movement, and, and people uh, representing everybody who was in Los Angeles at the time began to come. And not just Los Angeles, people began to travel from other parts of the United States, people from other countries. They would come to the revival, and they would take the seeds of revival back to wherever they lived. Um, and what began as revival in a black church soon spread all over the world, really. There was one man who recounted that the color line was washed away in the blood. And others came from, like I said, countries returned home with the flames of revival. It was a, a racially egalitarian movement from the very, very beginning. And not only that, um, William rejected almost the universal barriers to women in church leadership. There is a picture of, of the uh, revival leadership, and there's men and women, black and white, in the early 1900s in Los Angeles. This was unheard of. This was unheard of. Um, but the movement was not without criticism. Some of the headlines from, uh, from the revival said, Negroes and whites give themselves over to strange outbursts of zeal. You know, I, I might be all right if someone came to our church and was like, hmm, Strange outburst of zeal at that church. What's going on? Um, another one was uh, whites and blacks mix in religious frenzy. Another one, disgusting scenes at Azusa Street Church. And this one, crazed girls in the arms of black men. Those are real, real, uh, real headlines there. The, the revival lasted three years, but the impact continues to be felt. This was the beginning of, of what is known as the, the Pentecostal movement. And every uh, Pentecostal movement since then traces its roots back to Azusa Street. Whether it's Church of God in Christ, Church of God Cleveland, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, the, the Assemblies of God, Foursquare. And worldwide, the estimates are that there are 2 billion Christians around the world. 2 billion. A quarter of them, 500 million, identify with the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And it started with a poor black man from Louisiana. We are still feeling the, the impacts of William Seymour today around the world. Uh, February is Black History Month. And I would encourage you to intentionally, in some way, uh, not in some way, just, just learn something about uh, black history this month. Especially uh, if you are, are not black, take, take the time to do that. And it's, it's easier than ever. Like, I mean, just... There's websites, a podcast. Uh, there's a podcast that, that's on my phone that I go to occasionally. Just It's called History That, that Doesn't Suck. <laughs> that's the uh, name. And uh, there's a number of, um, of good uh, podcasts on there. Um, and, and you're like, Matthew, I don't even know white history. You know what I'm saying? Why should I learn black history? The reasons are many, but we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and learning history of a people says, I, I love you, I appreciate you enough to learn something about you. And, and so, um, yeah, it's all right. You can, we can have some zeal for that one. All right, okay. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, something else you could do. There is a, a, a museum, the Black American West Museum. Our very own Devon, I haven't seen Devon here this, this morning, but Devon is a filmmaker, he's a director, and on February 22nd, February 29th, two upcoming Saturdays from 3 to 6, 
they are highlighting some of his, his films at the Black American West Museum. So you could support one of our own and also learn some, some history at the same time. So um, anyway, so we're going to completely shift gears for a moment and, and to another story called The Wonder of Waco. Like, what is the wonder of... Oh, okay, we got a, we got a, we got a fan. <laughs> All right, well, you'll appreciate this story. Then. <laughs> um, the one, 1999, the Baylor Bears from Waco, Texas, college football team, was playing UNLV, the running uh, Rebels, I think, uh, Nevada, Las Vegas. Neither team was any good in the late 90s. <laughs> like, they were, uh, UNLV had lost 16 games in a row, which covered multiple seasons, they had won the previous week, and, and now they come, it was early September, they go to Baylor to play. Baylor, like some teams go undefeated, Baylor went defeated. Like that was, that was how they, that, they ended up in 1999, they were 1-10, 1-10. and 10. But on the Saturday afternoon in September, their luck changed. And with less than 30 seconds left against UNLV, they were up 24 to 21. They had the ball, and they were within 10 yards from scoring another touchdown. But if you know anything about football, all you have to do is what? Take a knee. You just have to take a knee, clock runs out, game over. But the coach was so tired of losing, and he wanted to instill in his players like a cutthroat mentality. Like, we are going to change things up around here. So he called a running play. With less than 30, again, take a knee, game's over. So it's almost like trying to run up the score, just a little bit. So the quarterback takes the ball, hands it to the running back. The running back goes up the middle. He gets hit at the three-yard line. But like any running back, when you get hit, you don't stop. You keep your legs churning, right? What happened? I want to show you what happened right here. So Baylor shot more. Instead of taking a knee with time running out, the Bears played for one more touchdown, and they got it. Only it was UNLV scoring the points. There's nobody in the stands. I don't know if you saw in the back there. <laughs> That's it. Uh, they would have won if they had just taken a knee. Sometimes, as Christians, we just need to take a knee. That's my whole point. Like we, our pride gets in the way, and we, for whatever reason. We, we don't pray. And a Christian who doesn't pray is like a functional atheist. Like there's no difference in, in behavior. And so for the last few weeks, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, and, and my hope is to stir within us a desire to pray. And not just a desire, but then to actually walk us through how we can, in fact, pray. So I think prayer sometimes can be intimidating, like I don't know what to say, I'm saying the right word in the right order. Um, but hopefully, as we've been going through this, you're saying, oh, I, I can do that. I can, I can, I can pray. And, and today we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And we've said that this was a model prayer, and it was a model of prayer. Like to pray these words exactly is good, and also to use just kind of the, uh, the steps of this prayer in our own words is also helpful. Uh, so today I'm going to read from a, a different version. We're doing a different version every week just to get a little different perspective. And today is from the International Children's Bible. So here's, here's what it says. 
So when you pray, this is Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 says, So when you pray, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your name will always be kept holy. We pray that your kingdom will come. We pray that what you want will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the food we need each day. Forgive the sins we have done, just as we have forgiven those who did wrong to us. And do not cause us to be tested, but save us from the evil one. The kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever. Amen. Amen. Today we're focusing on that phrase that said, we pray that what you want will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Traditionally, this is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is, it seems like a strange prayer at first. I mean, isn't God's will always done? Um, isn't everything that happens God's, God's will? Don't answer that yet. We'll, we're going to unpack that a bit. In Scripture, God doesn't speak directly very often. Occasionally, he, he speaks directly. Usually, uh, Scripture is a record of how God moves and how God works. But rarely does God just come out and speak audibly. Well, he speaks audibly to this guy named Job. Job had had a rough go of it, uh, bankruptcy, sickness, his, his kids had, had been killed. Like you can understand, Job was not living his best life now, all right? Um, and he, he cries out to God, and God finally responds to him. But not like we would, we would think. And, and these are in Job 38, it's in the, the Old Testament, Job 38, this is how God, just a portion of how God responds. God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the edges, uh, the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? And, and the chapter just goes on. God is like, Job, where, what amount of understanding do you have? And, and you would think that this almighty God who laid the foundations of the earth, who shut in the sea with doors, who commands the morning, puts the stars in their place, sends forth the lightning that goes on to talk about the Leviathan, who's like this mythical dinosaur-type creature, and it says, plays with him as with a bird. You would think that this God could get us to do his will. I mean, you would, you would think that if God could impose his will upon the seas and the stars and the clouds and the Leviathan, that he could impose his good and gracious will upon his two-legged creation. Or maybe you think, well, yeah, Matthew, of course God does. Yes, it, that, that is in fact how everything that happens is, is God's will. And Because um, after all, if God is almighty and can do whatever he wants, right, therefore his will must always be done. So if that is the case, then it's God's will for the uh, coronavirus outbreak. Like if that's, if that's the case. If that's the case, then it's God's will for immigrant children to be held in cages at the border. If everything that happens is God's will. If, if everything that happens is God's will, then it's God's will 
that the transatlantic slave trade happened or that unborn children never see the outside of their mother's womb, stillborn or abortion, or the opioid, opioid, I can't help me out, opioid, thank you, crisis is God's will. 15,000 people die a year from overdoses and opioids. Or every time a young man in the neighborhood is killed by violence, then that too must be God's will. Or any number of things. You guys get to where we're we're at here? Um, But maybe rather interpreting our lives by the events in our lives as God's will, we we look at Scripture. There are some things that we know are, in fact, God's will. God's will for us to do. Um, We start with the Ten Commandments. We know it's God's will for us to honor God above all others. To not take God's name in, in vain, to not murder, to honor your father and mother. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Down front. Uh, that, uh, we know it's God's will that you not commit adultery, that you not steal, that you not covet. It's God's will that you should obey his commandments. So have you always done God's will? No, 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 you, you have not. Um, so the better question is how many times every day do I not do God's will? Will And if, if you haven't done God's will all the time, and I haven't always done God's will, then I would say that God's will is not always done. And God's will is not always done. Um, the Bible speaks of other things that are God's will. Ezekiel 18.23, God is speaking again. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Like, that is God's will, but not everybody turns to the Lord. Not everybody lives. 1 Timothy 2, 4 in the New Testament, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God's will, but not all people are saved. Not everything that happens in this world and that happens to us is God's will. Everything that happens to us in this world, or the things that happen in the world, is God's will. In fact, much of what happens in this world and to us is not God's will. That's why he sent Jesus into the world, because his will was not being done. Uh, and, and man's will is often opposed to God's will. Um, Now, there's just one caveat here before we go further, is that God's ultimate purpose, I don't mean to say that God's ultimate purpose can be thwarted or that God has lost control. There's there's this, uh, like we like things to be very neat and clean in our American minds, and and when we come to Scripture and to God's will, but God's still being over everything, like there's some some things where we just don't know how it all works. But there are times we know that our will strives with God's will and our will wins out. And this is further evidenced by the second part of the prayer, which says, on earth as it is in heaven. Because apparently, where God is fully reigning, where he is fully king, there is no disputing, there is no pushback against God's will. Like when God in heaven, we're praying that thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So apparently in heaven, when, when God wants something to get done, there's nobody stopping it from happening. But on earth, 
we pray on earth as it is in heaven because on earth currently there are times where, in fact, we can thwart God's will and what he wants to accomplish. Um, and it's, it's not just us. The, the, there's systems and um, we do have an enemy, Satan, who at times can thwart what God wants to happen just for a time. Not for, not, again, not that God is out of control. And so thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer that God would overcome. It is a prayer that heaven would increasingly, or that earth would increasingly have the life of heaven brought to it, the joy of heaven, the, the, the peace of heaven brought here among us. It is an invitation to imagine a different world, a world that God meant, a world that God designed in, that will, in a way that he will ultimately make it. And so to pray, thy will be done, is, is twofold. It's to see, like, there are some, some things wrong in the world. There's some things wrong in my life, but we step in at the same time. We pray, believing that God can, in fact, bring his presence into that situation. We desperately need God's will to be done in this world and in our lives. Um, now, for those who are our parents, you might have had what some people label a strong-willed child. Uh, I've got just a picture I want to show you here. Like, if you had a strong-willed child, one day I'll be happy my daughter is an independent, iron-willed human with an unrelenting, strong voice. But not today. Not in the grocery store. Like, right, everybody's felt that, and uh, I'm not going to put that on any of my, my own children, um, that label, that is. But if we think about it, each one of us is that strong-willed child when it comes to God's will and our will, and we butt heads with God. We want our will to be done. We want our way. That is the American way. Frank Sinatra, what did he sing? There we go. My way. Like we want, and anything that stands in our way is to be cursed. Right, as Americans, we want our freedom. We want our choice, and we think that is the ultimate so to come into this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and to say, no, no, not, not my will, but your will, this is, um, this is not an easy prayer. And I think Jesus knew what he was doing, and when he gave us the progression of the Lord's Prayer, starting with Father, starting with kingdom, thy kingdom come, because if there's a kingdom, it implies that there is, in fact, a king in the kingdom. And then when the king comes, the king his will is enacted. That's the next step. And so if we're praying thy kingdom come, the next progression is thy will, the will of the king be done. And um, I mean, this prayer, at, at a deep level, Jesus is directing us to pray against ourselves. He is directing us to pray against ourselves. We are directed to pray for what we do not by nature want. We do not by nature want God's will. We, by nature, we want our will. That is what we want. Uh, John Wesley prayed this prayer, and it's been attributed to him, but he stole it from someone else. It's all fine. It's fine. But this was his prayer, and it's, been, it's uh, called the covenant prayer. It's in the Wesleyan tradition. He said, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. 
I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. In the covenant which I've made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Amen. This is our worst nightmare. I mean, none of us, I mean, if you've, if you've ever been in, in a relationship or you're married, like just in, within your marriage, like how often do you say, no, 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 not my will. It's your will, right? As you wish. Uh, we don't often say that because there's just something about our human nature that wants our way. We want compromise as long as the other person is compromising to what we want. Uh, that's the type of compromise that we want. Um, but, but this prayer of your will, give me all things, give me nothing. Use me, lay me aside. Let me suffer, let me prosper. I put myself at your disposal. I am not my own anymore. That, that is not an easy prayer. That is not an easy prayer. It's a prayer against ourselves. And so when we come to the Lord's Prayer, we've prayed it for, for years. Maybe we grew up in a tradition that prays it and it just becomes something that we go through. But then when you stop to think about what you're saying, like this is um, the Lord's Prayer is self-shattering. You've heard of something that's earth-shattering? The Lord's Prayer is self-shattering. It's a prayer of surrender. It's, it's really an impossible prayer. It's really an impossible except except that Jesus wasn't teaching us a theoretical prayer. Jesus drank his own medicine. Jesus drank his own medicine. The night when Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed, he was praying with his disciples. And in Matthew 26, it says, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed. When was the last time you fell on your face praying? My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men uh, keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. So Jesus in the garden is now praying what he taught his disciples to pray. And I would just have to imagine that this was not the first time that Jesus has prayed this prayer. Because when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, Jesus taught them how he prayed. And now he is facing, I mean, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows the, the torture that's coming. He knows, and, and I don't even know if it was uh, the disgrace of being stripped and beaten and naked that it was that was on his mind as much as it was, he knew the full wrath of God was going to be coming. 
He knew that the father was going to forsake him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he prayed, not as I will, but as you will. Uh, Martin Luther said, never man feared death like this man, Jesus knowing what was coming. And in that moment, Jesus' will is not done. If it's possible, Jesus was like, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will. And Jesus is not rescued. He is arrested, he is tried, he is bound, he is beaten, and he is killed. There is no rescue for Jesus in his prayer. And this does not look like heaven coming to earth. This looks like darkness winning. But because Jesus submitted to the Father, he won by losing. Jesus, Jesus triumphed by losing. And he conquered sin and death, but only by submitting to the will of the Father. Thy will be done. Is that, is that your prayer? Is that your daily prayer, God, that your will would be done? Is that your prayer, even if God's will finds you in dark places? Thy will be done. Is, is that your prayer, even if God calls you to go against your natural inclination? Is it your prayer, even if God calls you to live by a different sexual ethic? This is not a, a, a surrender to a cosmic blowhard or someone who doesn't love us. Remember, this prayer starts with Father. It's a sur surrender to our Father, the one who knows the beginning from the end. And the only way to completely surrender to your will to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says yes where we said no. Jesus says yes where we say no. And he takes our fallen will, our inability to say yes to God, and he takes that upon himself, even that upon the cross. And Jesus prays as we should and in our place, and he prays on our behalf, not my will, but yours be done. The will of God was and is done in Jesus Christ, completely fulfilled. And the will of God is done in us when we are in Christ. Um, George MacDonald is, is a, a writer, a thought leader. And he says there's two kinds of, of people. There are those in this life who say, thy will be done. And there are those who say, my will be done. And at the judgment, God will look at those people who said, my will be, be done. And God will say, okay, your will be done. Your, and they will get their will. They will get their way, life without God. Ah, the Lord's Prayer. It's just light and fluffy and not much to think about. Um, today I want to encourage you. We're going to take a moment and have a, a time to, to pray. A time to pray, thy will be done. Uh, and and Najee, could you have they're coming in a minute. And Brandy, I'm going to have you put back up that, the, the prayer of uh, the Wesleyan prayer. The one I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Um, so what I'd like us to do as, as Najee plays is to take a moment to pray. You can, you can stay uh, seated if you'd like. Um, and, and to consider... Are there times, and maybe just make it recently, like was there a place this week where I went with my will and not God's will? 
where I push back against God's will in, in my life. And, uh, and I would just encourage you to pray, Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and just like some of the other prayers about hallowing be thy name, start, like think of it in, in circles around you. God, may your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. You can move it out into the neighborhood. You can move it out into the systems. God, may you, your will be done in the, uh, in the schools in our neighborhood, in the economics in our neighborhood. May your will be done in the systemic um, racism that still exists. May your will be done in those things as it is in heaven. Those are all very appropriate prayers to pray. Those places where God's will is not yet being done because we stand in God's way of that. So just take a moment as Naji uh, plays and make that your prayer. God, would your will be done? <laughs>